again with unaccustomed verb. A tiny figure mounts the podium. He tosses a couple of fly balls out into the upper deck and uh, girds his loins. <laughs> Just thought I'd warm up. Charles, he's playing that awful, that awful, awful instrument again tonight. If that nice Mr. Gambling knew what he does, I'm sure that he wouldn't allow it. And you're right, baby. Listen, uh, we got a straw on a win here. We're gonna just going to have to bring it out. It's, it's a terrible little straw on a win. Maybe says something about our time. Everybody awake out there? All right. You never know where a straw is going to come from. Sydney, Australia. A new fad is sweeping Sydney. Yipe. Uh, pet shop owners say that a new fad is swinging all over Sydney, and it's for pet wild rats. They And here is what's so fascinating about it. They say that middle-aged women are behind this unprecedented demand for hundreds of tame evil rats. They say that uh, with most pets banned from Sydney apartment buildings, the only thing that doesn't seem to be banned are rats. <laughs> Man, a lot of people who live in my building would know about that. Uh, these rats are quiet and take up little room. Of course. And they're also very clean. Uh, they clean themselves like cats, and they eat anything at all. Often they'll eat the uh, inhabitant of the apartment. If I know anything about rats. So, please, if you will, we'd like to salute the newest nuttiness that is sweeping the world. Where do they discover hooded cobras? Oh, what a pet. Yeah. Oh, right, oh, right. Oh, ham and high. Over the cold line, we will go. Purple and white is high. Colors. Uh, excuse me. Uh, reset that, please. Uh, that record is not available for those of you who want to know about it, so quit writing to me about it. It is not available since that is a very rare recording of the Ham and High Fight song. Song by the Ham and High Pep Glee Club. Ham and high pep singers. Kind of nice. So would you please... It is not the William Tell Overture, which was obviously stolen from the Ham and High pep song. Hey, uh, a couple of weeks ago, we made a prediction. I hate to always have my predictions come true because most of my predictions are rotten. I mean, you know, I mean, believe me, uh, there's, there's a... You, have you ever heard of the Cassandra principle? Yeah, yeah, Cassandra. You don't know about that, huh? Well, neither do I, so uh, we're even, right, gang? But uh, nevertheless, <laughs> hey, George. Uh, nevertheless, uh, I keep making these terrible predictions, and they keep coming true. Like the other day, I was, you know, I was talking about you can get plastic, uh, you can get plastic uh, seaweed for your uh, aquarium. I said, this is the beginning, little encroachment there. The next step, of course, will be plastic fish. After that comes plastic water, and eventually, of course, forget the fish. Well, that's exactly what has happened. You can now buy, somebody says, Shepard, my George, uh, he says, Shepard, once again, you are ahead of yourself. It says uh, here, and he encloses a picture of a plastic, a little tiny plastic aquarium with little plastic fish, little plastic water there. You know, already you can buy yourself a little plastic kitten. Yeah, for people who hate, you know, real cats, but like the idea of cats. As I say, ideas about cats are better than cats. Ooh. Nothing's worse than a cat around a house. Oh, what a smell. But, uh, <laughs> nevertheless, oh, I suppose you love that smell, huh? Well, uh, okay. I mean, you know, six of one half does the other. But, you know, there's terrible stuff happening in the animal world tonight. And uh, tonight we have decided that we're going to finally have to do it. We're going to bring you the truth about animals. You know, there's a, this is a very sentimental country we live in. That's one thing that Americans have over the rest of the world. We are probably the gloppiest, most sentimental people on the face of the globe. Would you agree with that? Oh, I'm going to tell you. It would, it's obvious that only a country like, you know, we live in, and I'm not putting sentiment down, but it, there it is, let's face it. 
We invented Mother's Day. You know, Mother's Day did not exist until we came up with it. So that's pure sentiment. Mother's Day and uh, National Cat Week. You just can't imagine them having a national, national toad week in India. But uh, nevertheless, that's very common in America. You know, national Pig Week. Uh, you know. National Lizard Week, and everybody goes out and takes a lizard to lunch, that kind of stuff. And, uh, yeah, we're very sentimental people. Every week there's some cockamamie week going on, and, and I keep missing them. You know, I, I, I was so disappointed because uh, two weeks ago, uh, you may have missed it, but it was a national day. Two weeks ago, the iguana was uh, immortalized. Yes, there was National Iguana Day. And I'm not being funny. I'm just simply telling you that uh, this is what happened, National Iguana Day. And, of course, you missed it. I missed it, too. I, I got the dope later because uh, there is a nice iguana that I would have liked to have taken out to dinner. And they're friendly, really. You know, uh, uh, you have not yet, however, missed Horn Toad Week, which is in three weeks. So if you'd like to go out and salute the horned toad in your own way, I'm sure that nobody's going to complain. However, since we are so sentimental, we don't look at the other side of the picture. Isn't this a constant, uh, well, do you know what has been happening lately? All right. I'm getting out my information here. Lately, there has been a terrible, strange, curiously universal phenomena that has been happening in the world of animals. And what is it? Drunkenness. You know that animals have taken to hitting the jug? So, you see... It again fills one of my old prophecies that the devil is often not uh, uh, very effective in certain areas because the devil has just simply not showed up. Now, that's what I'm saying is that sin is often a matter of getting invited. I mean, I, I wonder how many people live blameless, innocent lives because they've never had an opportunity to do anything else. I mean, let's, you know, you, you pick, <laughs> let that soak in there for a while. I mean, uh, you know, you got to get invited to an orgy, friends, and you can get uh, awful mad about reading about one in the Daily News. You know, it's this gigantic orgy broken up on 12th Street, 247 carted off to jail. Fantastic scene. The police were greeted with a scene straight out of Dante's Inferno when they went into, you know, and you're sitting there, isn't that terrible? That really shows our civilization is declining by leaps and bounds. And there you're sitting there, you know, in your living room with nothing but Chris Shankle to look at on the TV set. And uh, somewhere not more than ten blocks away is a gigantic scene going on that is right out of Dante's Inferno. Who was it? H.L. Mencken defined morality. He defined morality as the general philosophical creed. Uh, well, uh, immorality. He defined immorality as the evil philosophical creed of those who are having more fun than you. <laughs> you know, there's some truth in that. And uh, I can only say, though, that a lot of us have been under mis really, truly misinformation when it comes to animals. Now, I have a letter here which I am about to read to you from one of our spies. It says, Dear Mr. Shepherd. And I like the fact he calls me Mr. Shepherd. That puts me in the official category there, you know, with Eric Severide, all those guys. It is apparent to me that you are a totally concerned person, <laughs> of course. Therefore, I take my pen in hand to inform you of a most distressing situation that occurs every year about this time, and I've noted that it is getting worse and worse. This has been an excellent year for the growth of wild berries and fruits. Didn't know that, did you, Shepherd? says, well... Look, friend, I spent a lot of time walking. I live in the village, so I know about what's been happening. To fruit. Anyway, it says they have uh, <laughs> ripened in the sun, and they have slowly began to ferment. It says late in the fall this happens due to the heat and the sugar content. Well, need I tell you that this has caused God's beautiful little feathered creatures to gorge themselves on these alcohol-laden berries, and they have become bombed out of their skulls. Shepherd, the devil is working everywhere. Just yesterday, on my lawn, there was a flock of beautiful, innocent, gorgeous little golden finches. Instead of conducting themselves decorously, they were yelling, hollering, having fights, throwing up on a lawn, and generally behaving in an unbecoming manner. I was shocked. 
shocked to the core. They acted more like uncouth starlings than beautiful golden finches. This very morning, a cock pheasant, flying like the proverbial bat out of hell, ran full tilt into the barn in the back of my house. As I picked up his broken little body and tried to revive him, I caught a whiff of a subtle wino-type odor. The same odor that I smell up and down 3rd Avenue, way down there in the Lower East Side, every time he burped in my hand. This was the first pheasant I ever saw. And I have lived in this neighborhood where there are millions of pheasants for many years. This is the first pheasant I ever saw with a silly grin on his beak. Oh, the devil. The devil is everywhere. Will the devil never stop his evil work, I ask you, shepherd? This afternoon, the most shocking thing of all happened. A cute little crow, a beautiful little, little yearling crow was scoffing up the remains of a defunct rabbit which had run afoul of a trailer truck when suddenly out of the blackberry bushes lurched two drunken sparrows. So I saw the whole thing. They attempted to assault the unsuspecting scavenger. The poor crow was so surprised that he took off and left town immediately. Truly the demon rum... The demon rum has gained the upper hand in the bird world. Now, this is true. You think this guy's kidding? Listen, as I observed, drunken grouse staggering about the countryside, bombed-out thrushes attacking pussycats, and a stinkoed blue jay trying to bite my dog, I am appalled beyond belief. As a true blue temperance worker, I hope, Shepard, you may aid me in my attempts to guide these these feathered creatures back on the straight and narrow path of righteousness. If the pressure of both you and your concerned relevant radio station, excuse me, it's relevant radio station, could be brought to bear upon our intelligent, hardworking, and incredibly wise legislators of Albany, this annual period of total debauchery conducted by our feathered friends could well be halted. A bill should be passed which would make it illegal for birds to be seen on the streets drunk. Next a contract for $8 million would be awarded to the Ward Healer Sign Company so they could pay for the state with posters which would warn these little singing creatures of the penalties which transgressions would bring. And this naturally would solve the problem in true legislative fashion, of course. Remember our slogan, Save a Drunken Bird. Thank you for your concern for all these lovable little wild creatures. Mrs. Lucia B. Frogfeather, bird watcher, temperance worker, and stripper emeritus of the Star Burlesque Theater. Please, if you will, a little salute there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, hold it, hold it. Thank you, thank you, thank you. That was very nice. I like that bugle. Very nice. Rats are getting in the house. Now listen, I want to I want to show you how sentiment rises to the occasion in America here. Let's see. Snakes and lizards are customarily associated by drinkers with delirium tremens, and they'd rather not see them. But in the suburban inn on the White Horse Pike, Oak Lynn, I don't know what town this is. I just have this note here from one of my spies. The other day they were toasting the memory of a special four-legged reptile known as Shim, a long-tailed iguana. Shim had been the mascot of American Legion Post Number 84, Oakland, for many weeks. On Monday, however, the little creature, the little lizard, apparently succumbed to its thirst for brandy. When will it stop? It died in the bathtub of Mrs. Elsie D. Zane, owner of the inn and junior vice commander to post... What's the first thing that drunks head for? The bathtub. There have been more drunks in my own memory that have slept out the weekend in a bathtub than I can care to remember. Do you agree? I don't know why bathtubs attract drunks, but apparently it's universal. A drunken lizard. Shim, we didn't know whether it was a she or a him, was the guest of honor at a wake in the inn. It was an Irish wake, according to the legionnaires, and as such required the mourners to drink until the body was in the ground. There were about 30 persons at the bar attempting to satisfy that stipulation. They were slapping it up like mad. You don't have to be Irish to attend an Irish wake, according to his piece, nor do you have to be grieving. As midnight came and went, most of the mourners 
were in tears. The after effect of raucous laughter and uh, a lot of bourbon, of course. One Legion member was down on his knees, wailing in Italian for the departed mascot, and his words mingled with laughter in the smoky tavern. But don't laugh, a member admonished his comrade. This is serious. This is our, our, musk- our, our mascot. Old Shim's carcass spent the evening and early morning in a tiny coffin on a table. Behind him, a number of florist-prepared bouquets gave authenticity to the ritual. <laughs> that, no, you, you understand what I'm reading here. This is a dead lizard. And they've got, look at they've got it set up. It's like a real funeral. See the flowers and all that? There's a picture of it, see? It's in a little coffin there with an American flag draped over like a veteran, you know, a bit. <laughs> These guys are sopping up the bourbon, you see. Now, the point about Shim. Now, had Shim, this, this iguana, been run over by a truck, I don't think anybody would have done that. What did he do? He drank himself out of his skull and finally died in a bathtub. Naturally, this appeal to the Legionnaires. Uh, this is my own editorial. Nevertheless, uh, Mrs. Zane's other pets are two turtles, Myrtle and Charlie, and a stuffed dog. Huh. <laughs> a stuffed dog who is registered in the municipal building and has a license. I'd like to see this, Mrs. Zane. At one point last night, when the spirit filled the mourners, they were compelled to rise, form a single line, and file out. Outside the tavern, a one-gun salute cracked in the cooling night from the muzzle of a pistol. Then they returned to the bar with uh, the whole crowd, and they drank to the memory of this departed mascot, this poor lizard. That's only fitting, one of the members said. This lizard loved to get bombed. All right. Now, I'm putting this in my vast pile of trivia. This is going to go along with, uh, so 5,000 years from now, they'll really know what life was like in our time, right? Now, that's no crazier than the Egyptians. You know, they used to <laughs> they used to do some pretty wild stuff with animals, too. But it's it's beginning to happen everywhere you look. You know, I, I'll tell you, my first my first real experience with drunken animals. Now, most of you city people think I'm just sitting here talking, I'm sure. But the first experience I ever had with drunken animals came about one time. I must have been about 15. And you see, gradually our innocence is stripped off from us. You agree with this? It doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen instantly. You know, speaking of drunks, I want to ask you a question. I want to ask you a good question. Listen carefully. And I want all of you to listen now, especially you historian types. Does the name Thomas Morton mean anything to any of you? Thomas Morton. Nothing to do with salt. Thomas Morton. Very interesting character. Doesn't mean anything to any of you. Well, I'll tell you about Thomas Morton. Now, don't ask me why I know this kind of stuff. I just no reason. Except that I have that kind of mind. I have a bad mind. You got a bad mind, nothing you can do, right? Okay. You know about Plymouth, don't you? You know about uh, Plymouth Rock? You heard about Plymouth Rock? Okay. Okay. What was Plymouth? Well, Plymouth was the first settlement. These people landed on the shores. These Puritans landed on the shores of this, this howling wilderness many, many centuries ago. What was the year? Do you know, Jerry? Come on now, what kind of a historian are you? What year did the Plymouth settlement begin? Did they arrive on the shores and set up their little tiny settlement? All right, we'll let you. (laughs) Oh, boy. We are, you know, this is still a howling wilderness. (laughs) It's got a lot of subways, but man, it's sure a wilderness. All right. Uh, <laughs> I'll bet most of you know what the what the what the date 1066 means. I'm sure that most of you know what the date 1492 means. You know all these great dates, but hardly anybody knows the, the really groovy ones. You know. Well, all right. Nevertheless, on this famous year, which I will not tell you. I mean, I'll let that that'll be your homework for tonight. On this year, and I'll, I'll give you a clue. It was in the 17th century. 
right? 16 blank. These people landed. Now, what were the principles upon which they based their landing and, you know, what they were going to do? Well, they were going to set up a community. In fact, they were going to set up a whole country that was based entirely on absolute strict moral laws. They were going to have, you know, total temperance. They were, they were, they were very, very, well, that's why they were called Puritans. These were the original Puritans. They were Puritans, you see. They were really ones. So they, they established a community where, uh, where it was believed that, that if you lived an absolutely moral life, you did not drink, you did not, you did not dance, you did not sing on Sunday, you didn't, I mean, you absolutely lived a totally straight life. There was no question about it. You were completely bound for heaven. When you get up there, you would get your reward in the next world. This world was going to be a drag. That was a fact, you know. If you didn't do any much except sit around and worry about the next world, obviously this world has to be a drag. So, uh, nevertheless, it was a, 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 a world of complete rectitude. Well, now, this continued for roughly four years. And they were able to pull it off. See, this is the, this is the problem of all utopias. And it was going to be a community based completely on everybody helping everybody else. And it was all, it was, the, it was an original commune. They were going to live beautiful lives. They were going to get away from war, pestilence. And, and you know that the, that the, that the first, this may be interesting to you, uh, historic, if you don't know these facts, that as they were coming across the ocean and they were about to set up their, their uh, little community, who was the leader of that crowd? Miles Standish. You mean you never heard the name John Winthrop? Okay. Well, he was pretty good at pretty high up the totem pole, too. Well, anyway, on the ship, Mr. Winthrop put together a thing called the Moral Creed of the New World, in which he laid down these precepts. <laughs> and, uh, he, and his opening line was, we are basing, and I'm translating it because the, the words are archaic, and uh, you wouldn't understand them. Because <laughs> who would, you know? The words are archaic. But the, the first line was, this community, this new world, will be based entirely on love. How many times have you heard that jazz, right? I mean, <laughs> that sounds like every commune that's ever been started. They all start out with this great thing. This will be based on love. We will help one another. We will always constantly observe the proprieties and make sure that there will be no war, no hate, no evil, and that we will always be standing at each other's side, and we will truly be our brother's keeper. Oh, man, it sounds like every commune I ever heard. Started, you know, the fantastic moral rectitude. Speaking of uh, moral rectitude, this is WOR New York, and how about a little, uh, a little blurb for an X-rated film here, gang? The Stewardesses, America's most controversial new film... The stewardesses in new StereoVision 3D and Eastman Keller. StereoVision 3D is the most realistic film process ever developed. Don't miss The Stewardesses, the film all America is talking about. This picture has been rated X. Very, very X. Oh, oh man, wait till Winthrop hears about that. The stewardess, stewardesses, and more than one, actually. Now at a flagship theater near you, you can't miss this beauty. Check your local newspaper for a theater near your home. <laughs> well, uh, oh, my favorite, though, in that week was the orgy up in Lil's room. That was, that was a hell of a film, I'll tell you that. Uh, 3D to hold bit. But uh, nevertheless, uh, before we go any... Hey, listen, before we go any further, pick up a copy of Time magazine. And uh, right now, the current time... And uh, you show this to all your Doubting Thomas friends. <laughs> Sir, Time Magazine, the current issue, and this is not a commercial for Time. Pick up, no, it isn't. Pick up a copy of Time Magazine and go back to the book section, and you will see a list which is a very, very elite, difficult list to crack called National Best Sellers. And there you will find listed. On their national bestsellers, guess what? <laughs> Modesty forbids me saying that uh, it's Wanda Hickey's Night of Golden Memories and other disasters. If I wasn't so modest, I would tell you. I will let you discover it yourself. <laughs> Why, George. However, uh, there it is. 
All right. Put that in your thing and smoke it, gang. <laughs> but the, you know, seriously, though, you know what's so strange about that bestseller list? I mean, it's a national one. Remember, that's very different than the just, say, like the New York Times, which is a New York area bestseller list. It's national. It's a very, very different scene. And it's uh, obviously, it's a, it's a more difficult thing to crack. But nevertheless, they have me listed inexplicably under nonfiction which really surprises me. I wonder if they really believe this is autobiographical or what, you know. <laughs> there I am, right next to Dr. Marcus Welby or uh, um, uh, Marcus, what's his name? Everything you want to know about sex and hell of a lot more than you even care to know. And a lot of stuff that doesn't mean anything anyway by Dr. whatever his name is. <laughs> but actually, that what what is so fascinating about it is I'm listed there under nonfiction and in the Publishers Weekly, which is the very, very uh, authoritative uh, well, it's the, it's the Bible of the publishing world. I am listed in their bestseller list under fiction, which is, of course, true. It's more correct. So uh, I just thought you might want to know. And, uh, you know, got any doubting Thomas friends out there? You're sure that, old Tom. But, uh, however, I, you know, I, this, this business, I want to pursue this, you know, because here we got these drunken birds reeling around the place, which shows you how far down the line we have gone since the days of the Puritans. I mean, even the birds are skunked out of their heads. Oh, yeah, you know, you know, it's, it's, do you know that, that uh, with all this talk of drugs, you know, people have been talking so much about drugs, they're endless. Oh, if I, if I see one more documentary on drugs, I'm going to flow up, you know, on and on and on. They all say the same thing, see. They go on and on. And I'm not, a, a, certainly I'm not against, uh, you know, the alerting people about the drug menace, but uh, I can only say that, uh, that uh, there's a certain point when it, you reach a saturation point, when you just keep on and on and on, and, and nothing new really is uh, is coming out. So they keep talking about that. But in spite of the fact that everybody talks about drugs, do you know what the number one problem is among teenagers today? Number one, kills more kids than drugs. Alcohol. Now that'll support because nobody's talking about it. And let me tell you, if, you, if you're curious about this. That uh, that many uh, an insurance company, that is, people who insure drivers, for example, will tell you that drunkenness among teenagers in cars has caused more deaths among teenagers than any other single element in the teen world. In other words, they're really sopping it up. I mean, let's face it, uh, <laughs> that uh, that the stuff is going fast. And of course, among other things, you know what? One of the biggest new Total fads among kids is these days not not drugs, but cheap wine. You know, the, the, this these these fruit flavored wine, you know, the stuff that tastes a little bit like uh, diet yoohoo, you know, or diet wild strawberry, and the kid is sitting around drinking this stuff up like they ain't no tomorrow, you see, and his liver is quietly dissolving. <laughs> oh man, I'll tell you. There ain't nothing that'll get to your innards quicker, man, than bad wine. And if you don't think so, the word wino refers to specifically that, right, man? <laughs> he knows what it's about. And uh, you know, and this is something I think a lot of people are totally unaware of, completely unaware of. And, and uh, I'm, I'm sure that, that uh, you know, that I, I'm, not, I'm not a moralist in any sense of the word. I'm just simply telling you what's happening, Dad. I don't invent the trends. I tell you about them, you know. <laughs> so, uh, nevertheless... Uh, you know, getting skunked. See what you do. How you do it now? See, it's it's a it's a form of seduction. That if you have a bottle that's labeled wine, the kid tends to think, well, that's you know, that's grown-up stuff. You know, that's the old folks. They drink wine. But if you call it uh, winearoony zingo, man, he's slapping it up. You know, he's gurgling it down. Especially if you say it's a uh, wheaties flavored zingy. Say so it. Uh, <laughs> And so he loves it, see? Or then if you say, uh, uh, get the new, uh, you know, it's great, uh, you know, get the new uh, popsicle-flavored zingy. And, of course, uh, way down at the bottom, it says, uh, uh, made from uh, <laughs> made from bad California. I mean, it's a kind of California wine, you know, that you use to keep your radiator from freezing up. So, uh, nevertheless, you're drinking up of this stuff, kid, and boy, you're going to have a liver, frankly, the size of a Yankee Stadium. You keep pushing it. 
and your eyeballs will start popping. And the, the next, I'll, I'll bet, I'll bet in a, in another two years there's going to be kids sitting sitting in class, you know, and they're going to be, you know, you, you, you have you ever seen a wino? You know, a real wino, you know, kid will be sitting going, rah, rah, rah. you know, there's just, he's sitting back there and, and the poor teacher's trying to teach history, you know, and here's, here's this little wino, you know, this 12 year old wino sitting back, he skunked, you know, one of his shoes has fallen off and he's got this, <laughs> he's got this bottle of, uh, you know, uh, popsicle flavored zingy and it's, uh, it's, it's hidden. You see, what happens with winos is that they tend to, to, to sip it constantly. See, that's different from uh, real alcoholics. You know, alcoholics get uh, get bombed on hard stuff because, see, hard stuff you can't drink uh, steadily. So what happens is, uh, with, with an alcoholic on hard stuffs, he'd go out, see, and he'll knock down a, uh, let's say, a quart of bourbon or a half quart of bourbon. Boom! He's gone. Zap! For three days he doesn't drink anything. See, he's just laying in the bed throwing up. And uh, then they finally dry him out, and uh, you know they throw water on his head and so on. And they drag him back to life, and they put his socks back on. And two hours later, bam! <laughs> well, now, wine is different. Uh, the, the problem with wine is that you can you can you can slowly sink into a lifelong stupor, which is what happens to winos, where they're where they're always just you know on the edge of the abyss. And they sip this stuff steadily. It never knocks them completely out, and that's what makes it dangerous. And I don't know why I'm telling you all this, but but uh, I, I happen to have a friend who specializes in these problems in the medical world, and he says, "Ain't nothing worse, man, than a wino, because that's bad news. Because it seems so innocent. You just sip this stuff all while we're watching TV. See, strange enough, you find yourself watching three TV sets most of the time. See, and you generally try to pick the middle one." Because uh, uh, you, you fear that's where it's really happening. The other two are kind of subsidiary ghosts, which they are, you know, in your mind. So, uh, nevertheless, uh, this, you know, this is slowly beginning to, to happen everywhere. And, and uh, you want to know, then, about the beginnings of our country. See, this goes back to it. You curious about it? Okay. Mr. Winthrop, see, he set up the first beauty, love, truth commune. And it was, it worked, you know, for about the first three or four, everything was groovy. You know, people, they, they all stood, stood by each other and they hewed the wood and they carried the water and everything was groovy. Then all of a sudden, 25 miles from Plymouth Colony, another ship arrived to shore. And this was another crowd. As a matter of fact, <laughs> it was headed by one Thomas Morton. They were not there ten minutes when the party began. They came over to this country only to swing, yell, and holler, and do all the stuff they couldn't do anywhere else without landing in the slam. This is the truth. Did you know about him? Ah, you're learning some history you don't get in school. Well... The, 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 the accounts in the Plymouth Colony, the Plymouth Colony, of course, was astounded. See, it was the devil had arrived. They figured they could set up a new country and keep the devil out. Well, the devil arrived. And not only did he arrive, man, he arrived with all flags flying. And the first thing these guys did, listen to what they did, if you're curious about it, they set up a maypole. And they immediately began to dance and sing and yell and holler around it. And, and all the Indians came for miles around to get skunked. These guys, they guys came with 400 barrels of rum, and they did nothing but have a gigantic, orgiastic, I mean, a true orgy, really. And the, the, the chicks, in fact, they even wrote songs. I read a copy of one of the songs that Thomas Morton wrote. I couldn't even tell you on the radio. <laughs> I'm telling you, if you think the stewardesses are X-rated, friend, you ought to hear the song he wrote. Now, this was back in the 1600s. Well... They said that the that the parties were, would get so loud, the guys would start yelling. So, and the whole thing is shooting guns and screaming and yelling, running around, dancing around a maypole, drinking this stuff, getting bombed out of their heads, that they could hear the party 25 miles away in Plymouth. Well, I'll tell you, it was uh, it was hell to pay. And uh, old Tom, see, he started the whole scene. And it was a true hippie scene. I mean, oh, far more than it. Of course, you see, today, the, the average hippie of today 
uh, he would be more like the guy from Plymouth Colony, you know, very moral. He's always talking about peace and truth and love and beauty. Well, uh, right down the street, the, this, this roistering, this roistering, and by the way, they, they went in for, for uh, the, according to the, the contemporary council, it said they went in for very bizarre clothes. They immediately started to let their hair grow long. They were dirty. They never took a bath. They yelled and screamed and sang and drank. They had up this they had the maypole going there the whole day. They, in other words, they were having fertility rites. Well, this uh, this caused a lot of excitement in Plymouth Colony. So they immediately went over there, see, <laughs> and they, 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 they arrived, and they're going to put this guy under arrest, see, because he was disturbing the peace. You didn't know that this was all happening in, in the very early days of our country. Well, they did, see. Well, they arrived to, 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 to put the finger on this guy, and he and his buddy, this Morton and his buddy, were so drunk, laying there drunk, that they didn't know they were being arrested. They were drunk, drunken skunks. See, they were running and said, Whoa, look what you are doing to our beautiful colony. He's going, That's about all he said. Well, you know, you ever tried to argue with a guy that's laying in the doorway on 6th Avenue, you know, these deserve. He didn't know what you're talking about. So they carted Morton and his crowd, Morton himself, they carted him back to the Plymouth colony and they put him on an island right off Plymouth there, see, that was isolated. They figured they're going to put him on this island, see, till the next boat goes back. <laughs> They were sending them back. Well, they, they, they put them on this island. So what happened? And by the way, this island had no booze on it. It had nothing but, a you know, a couple of turtles and a bunch of lizards and some trees. That's it, see? He wasn't there five minutes when all of his drunken Indian friends crept up at night in their canoes, and they brought a lot of booze with them. And five minutes later, this gigantic party breaks out on the island. <laughs> well, <laughs> so... <laughs> So I'm just telling you, I'm telling you that, that, that if, if you've had problems with your neighbor throwing a hell of a party, you know, keeping you awake all night, this is an old American tradition. It's been going on since the early days of the wilderness. See, we tend to like to think that the wilderness was filled with nothing but great guys, you know, that walked around like, uh, you know, Davy Crockett and, uh, oh, by the way, there was a drinker. You didn't know about that, did you? Oh, he laid the soup away something awful. And uh, he, he wasn't alone, I'll tell you. You know who also liked his, uh, his nip now and again? In fact, uh, they say that if he didn't have wooden teeth, maybe the reason he had wooden teeth was George Washington himself. Oh, listen. You know what he was hung on? You know what Washington loved? Madeira. You ever had Madeira wine? That was his particular thing. You know, he loved it, see, at that wherever he went. Oh, yes, it wasn't only General U.S. Grant. Now, I'm not saying, I'm not making bad remarks about Washington. I'm just telling you that Washington, you know, he knew how to hang one on. I'll tell you, he loved the chicks. And so when Washington, yes, he was known for his elegant uniforms. Wherever Washington would go when he was uh, operating the reins of the command in the, in the Revolutionary War, always his uh, little tent would go with him, you know, this whole setup, then his staff, and in the middle of all this, there was this cart that was very carefully guarded and covered up, and it had 19 barrels of Madeira. <laughs> That's right. <sighs> Shepard, why do you tell these bad things? Uh, you know who else loved this? Uh, yeah, and the, and the thing about it is that, see, people, the more a guy tends to be moralistic, the more he hands out mottos the more he tends to be exactly the opposite of his motto. You know, I don't know why Americans always believe that guys who write about peace, for example, are peaceful people. It, this has always been the problem, that, the, that guys generally write fervent things about the very thing they hate, basically. Now, I'll give you an example. Who, all right, okay. What, what is one of the most moralistic pieces of literature ever produced in America outside of, you know, tracts and that kind of stuff. That's right. Poor Richard's Almanac. And poor Richard always said things like a penny saved is a penny earned. Moderation in all things. Who wrote that? That is correct. A man named Franklin. Well, he did more than invent stoves and go around flying kites. This guy, yeah, he flew kites all right, but, uh, not the kind you necessary. In fact, he almost got run out of France one time. He became... <laughs> you know something about Mr. Franklin? Not only did Mr. Franklin, was he a connoisseur of fine brandies. In fact, he was, he was probably the most, uh, well, uh, he was considered an expert on various grades of bourbon. That he was probably 
Well, you know, he, he was the kind of guy that makes, uh, he made, uh, let's say, King Farouk look like a kid when it came to the, to the lady department. And here he's always writing this stuff, moderation. <laughs> the whole generation of people, millions of people grew up reading this stuff. Well, now I could, I could give you other examples. Like, uh, for example, who wrote, you know, this, this is to show you that, the, that hardly anything is what it seems to be. Who wrote, you hear him, on, I talk about him on the show. Who wrote the most, uh, I suppose you might say, famous, well-known poetry about the fantastic lure, the, com the total lure of the Arctic and the far north? That's correct, Robert Service. Do you know where Robert Service spent his life? You curious? In a villa on the Mediterranean in the south of France. <laughs> well, he spent a little time in his early days in Alaska, but the first thing he did was cut out like a big speckled bird the day he hit it big in the money department, and he took off for where he really wanted to go all of his life, and he never wrote about that. At no point, he wrote a lot of stuff after he got there, but at no point did he ever write about <laughs> the fact that he spent his days in the sun, sitting there on the sands of the Mediterranean, writing about the northern lights, right? Oh, man. I mean, you can go on and on about this kind of stuff, but, but nevertheless, very few people in history, the historians, uh, even, even uh, you know, you ask your history teacher, he will tell you he probably has never heard of Thomas Morton. You know what finally happened with Morton? Well, <laughs> he got to be such a fantastic drag. I mean, all these guys singing and dancing and yelling, you know, the Indians are drunk as a skunk and they're running around the whole scene. Well, incidentally, he almost broke up one of their Thanksgiving celebrations. You know the famous Thanksgiving celebrations when they would gather and the Indians would come? He showed up with 450 jugs of, of bourbon and stuff. <laughs> Guys are smoking pot and yelling, hey, you know, let's go have a real party. Well, they, uh, you know, they, they had to chase him out. They shagged him right out with blunderbusses. But uh, nevertheless, what finally happened to him, they sent him back to England. They packed his whole crowd back, put this roistering mob on a boat, and <laughs> they sent him back. <laughs> so see, he, he later he later published an account, uh, a very rare, if you're a collector of rare books, he published a rare account, and I suspect it was really rare if uh, you know the history of what he did. He published a rare account, it's described as, of his life among the savages and in the New World. And it didn't go over so good. I mean... Uh, because first of all, uh, you know, he didn't remember much about his life in the New World. <laughs> After all, when you're drunk for two and a half years, it's not easy to write about your reminiscences. So uh, there, there you go. This is a uh, famous Morton. Well, now, the first time I ever ran into into drunken animals, I'm about fifteen, saying I'm a kid. You know, I, I believe all this stuff. Poor Richard's almanac, you know, all that just animals are beautiful and pure, and uh, they're great. See, well, across the street from us. There was this lady named Mrs. Scott, and uh, Mrs. Scott was like, uh, you know, the, 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 one of those typical... I'll tell you one thing about Mrs. Scott. She was a hell of a fielder. Uh, Mrs. Scott, we would play ball out in the street in front of our house, see? And Mrs. Scott was one of those ladies who collected any ball that was hit on her lawn or in her backyard, forget it. She, you know, it was gone. She'd come running out, hopping out like a frog. I never saw anybody run so fast, you know. This old crow would come running out making these squeaking noises, you know, always wearing curly. <laughs> she come running out. You stop hitting up all of my yard. I'm going to call the police. Well, she would grab that. She used to wear a fielder's mitt. And uh, she would catch that ball before it even hit the ground. You know, this old gal was out there. She had maybe three, four, five hundred uh, taped baseballs. She was probably was selling them somewhere, you know. But nevertheless, that was the kind of lady Mrs. Scott was. She also had a dog. Now, this dog was a curious breed. You don't hear much about this breed of dog anymore. Whatever happened to Spitzes? You never see Spitzes anymore. Did you ever hear of a dog called a Spitz? You never did, huh? See, now there's an example. Have you, Jerry? Sure. But you, you, they just don't exist much anymore. You don't see Spitzes. See, dogs go through cycles. <laughs> they do. And uh, it's terrible to be a part of a breed of dog that is out of style. Like, a <laughs> what do you do, you know, when you've got last year's dog living around the house? You know, a lot of these people are very fashion conscious, you see. 
And a, a few years ago, uh, the only dog that anybody who was with it would have around the house was a poodle, miniature poodle. You know these little poodles? Well, all of a sudden, the poodle became passe. You know, now it's the Great Dane. See, they've gone the other way. You see these guys walk along Greenwich, you know, these tall, thin guys with the pink shirts and all that. they got these giant Great Danes. Well, these are the same guys that last year had a poodle. And uh, the year before that, they had a, uh, a corgi. You know, see, see, they come. Well, there must be a Sargasso Sea someplace. Uh, you know, used dog dealers uh, that sell last year's uh, fashionable dog. And, uh, you know, cut rates, of course. You can probably pick up a Spitz now, five, ten dollars and there's millions of them on the used dog market. But nevertheless, <laughs> sure, you know, let's face it. Uh, and, there's, of course, people go in and out of style. Uh, for Yeah, sure, for, for a while there, uh, astronauts were in style. Now you couldn't give one away, you know. Uh, a couple of years ago, uh, sure, uh, uh, rock groups were in style. Now they're all walking around, you know, making bad noises and... Uh, Trying to turn, convert themselves to painters or something, but they rock is dead. It's a face it. It's not making it. Well, you know, which the whole thing is gone. But uh, nevertheless, the Spitz lived across the street. Of course, he was on the top of the walk in those days. He was walking high because he was a Spitz, and Spitzes were popular. He was in, in other words. And I remember his name. His name was Rocky, Rocky, and he was well named. One thing about Spitzes, in case you don't know anything about the Spitz, is a mean little mother. I'll tell you, these are not the, you know, these are mean little dogs. And they have long hair, sharp pointed noses, and beady eyes. That's the Spitz. And also, another thing he's noted for is his nagging, continual, yapping bark. Yeah, so Rocky would just sit out. There's not nothing going on in the neighborhood. He'd just sit on the back going, yep, yep, yep. Steadily, he just sit out there and go do this thing day and night, twenty four hours a day. He would be barking at a passing cloud. He would, uh, you know, uh, the sky would irritate him for a while. He'd bark at the sky. Then he would bark at a tree. He uh, just sit there. Well, the thing about Mrs. Scott was that Mrs. Scott was always calling the police because other people in the neighborhood were making noise. So, uh, for example, one time my Uncle Carl came over to visit us on a weekend, and he had a snootful, as he always did. Now, my Uncle Carl had a habit when he uh, had a load on. Uh, he had a habit of sitting out in the front porch and playing his banjo. Well, old Uncle Carl's sitting out there. He's plunking away there. He's uh, happily playing his banjo, when all of a sudden the squad car just pulls right up in front. Two guys get out, and they walk up to Uncle Carl playing his banjo. And we're sitting in the house, you know, and uh, all of a sudden the police arrived. And, uh, hey, what are you doing, buddy? I got a complaint here. They're serving a piece. Uncle Carl looks up, and he's going to look at He's saying, hey, misbehave. He didn't know what they were talking about. They just took him away. We didn't see him for maybe two, three weeks. Well, that was the kind of lady Mrs. Scott was. And yet, the only thing that really disturbed the peace in the neighborhood was Rocky, a true peace disturber. Who's going? Well, one day, if just the day like today, any other day, unsuspecting day, Rocky, for no reason, apparently no reason, Mrs. Scott comes out to the backyard with her, her uh, plateful elbow to hand the Rocky. Rocky suddenly, without any warning, grabbed her by the ankle and gave her a shot. Well, of course, the entire neighborhood applauded. See, there, was, ah! there was a yell out there. And the Rocky has given his mistress, Mrs. Scott, a shot in the ankle. That Well, it was a shot that was heard around the, around the whole neighborhood, you know, because uh, everybody hated Rocky. And I might point out there was no love lost for Mrs. Scott. And so suddenly Rocky attacks Mrs. Scott. You know, it's like uh, the Red Chinese are bombing uh, Moscow. You know, I mean, you know, all right. So Rocky bites her. What a shot. Well, she goes running in the house and she comes back out now. You know, she's got a fly swatter or something. <laughs> and Rocky, he fends her off and he gives her another shot, this time on the other ankle. Well, this goes on for about five minutes and now about 25 kids are gathered out there. You know, Rocky is holding off Mrs. Scott. 
suddenly he falls over on his side and falls asleep. Now, I saw that with my own eyes, a dog in the middle of a fight, fall over and start to sleep. Rocky was drunk. Mrs. Scott had in the backyard, now listen to this now, if you want to know how a dog gets his uh, jollies, in case you're interested in how the devil works. Rocky lived in the backyard that also had in the backyard a rabbit pen. You know a rabbit hutch? For some nutty reason, you know, there's certain kind of ladies that grow very unexplained animals. Why Mrs. Scott grew rabbits in her backyard, no one knew. It's just exactly why are these ladies in Sydney raising rats? There's a certain kind of lady that cannot explain her actions. She tends to eat blackstrap molasses. She often wears space shoes. She's in love with Barry Goldwater. At, uh, she has a whole set of things going that, uh, you know, believes in uh, uh, Gene Dixon. She's got a whole lot of stuff, UFO, the whole thing. Anyway, Mrs. Scott kept rabbits. One day, all by himself, Rocky discovered, and these, by the way, rabbit pens were raised up. They were on about three foot high little things, like sticks sticking out of the ground, and they were nailed up against the back of her house. He discovered that these rabbits, eating rabbit food, tended to knock the rabbit food out of the little cans that they kept the food in, and it would fall on the ground under the hutches. Now, have you ever seen rabbit food? It's little pellets. You've seen that stuff they give them? Well, these little pellets would lay out there under the rabbit hutch for maybe two or three days, and it would rain on them. And the sun would come out. It would rain on them again. Give a couple of weeks of this, and you got the... Uh, well, <laughs> you got under the rabbit pen. You got something, man, that is a little bit more than rabbit food. It ain't quite exactly Old Forester. It ain't, uh... It ain't, uh, Hundred Piper Scotch. But it was good enough for Rocky. So Rocky took the lap and his stuff up. And that we noticed, we noticed for a couple of weeks before the time that Rocky bit this lady a couple of times around the ankle, that uh, Rocky was uh, singing a lot and he was not barking as much. He would just sit there and look and smile at everybody. And we would be playing baseball out there. And often Rocky, in that period of euphoria, would even pick up foul balls that we hit and bring them back out to us, staggering a bit. And then the, the, the word got out. The reason that Rocky bit Mrs. Scott was that he was having an unbelievable hangover. Rocky had a head about the size of a watermelon that day. And what was more, he couldn't get any of the good stuff because somebody had cleaned up under the pens. And for two days, Rocky doesn't have access to, uh, to the stuff that he had grown to love. And now he was sleeping it off, and he woke up with a fantastic Pomeroni of a hat. Yes. Oh, yes, that's right. Uh, tomorrow, gang. Oh, hold that up again. Don't forget, tomorrow I'm going to be on WNYC. Key, no, Key Berman Perspective. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. WORFM, Key Berman Show. Between 8 and 8.30 a.m. Well, you've got to get up on Sunday morning tomorrow between 8 and 8.30. If you want to hear it, tomorrow on WORFM, I'm a guest on Keith Berman's show, Perspective. That's WORFM. So, you know, I won't talk about Rocky. Because, you know, I don't want kids to get the wrong idea. But with all these drunken pheasants and stuff around, this is no surprise. And, of course, it began to strip away those great illusions that I had. I began to wonder about Lassie. Wonder whether Lassie, where does Lassie spend her weekends? I don't know. I don't know much anymore. I'm beginning to guess though a lot. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Oh, this is W O R U Claude and <clears throat> Brack. We have the news coming up. This is Bruce Elliott with news in detail from the WOR Newsroom. 42-year-old Rupert Lee, the prime suspect in today's slaying of a New York City housing patrolman, is now dead. Lee died tonight at Brookdale Hospital in Brooklyn from two bullet wounds in his stomach after police had shot the reportedly armed suspect in the basement of an abandoned house in Brooklyn. 
Patrolman Arthur Pello died today of a gunshot wound, and his partner, housing officer Nicholas Capetza, was wounded in the ankle in a shootout on the street at 694 Rockaway Avenue. Lee and an unidentified man were arguing there when one of the two called the housing patrolman. It was then that the shooting began and Lee ran into the house. Lee lived at 534 Flushing Avenue in Brooklyn. Police have not reported on what Lee and the other man were arguing about. President Nixon made a personal appearance tonight at the Portland-Oregon negotiations on the West Coast Longshoreman strike. While he was flying to Montana late today, Mr. Nixon decided to join other administration leaders at the talks because the president was said to be disappointed at the continued failure of both sides to solve the dispute. The president said after tonight's meeting that both the Longshoremen and the West Coast Maritime Association will try to reach a settlement by the end of next week. Twenty-four West Coast ports have been closed since July 1st, and commodities in Hawaii and some western states on the continent are becoming scarce. The Longshoremen want higher pay and a $500 a month pension. After a stopover in Oregon, President Nixon will head for Anchorage, Alaska for a meeting tomorrow with Japan's Emperor Hirohito. A 24-year-old law covering establishment of detention centers for suspected subversive persons is no more. President Nixon signed a repeal measure today. Democratic National Party Chairman Lawrence O'Brien has termed President Nixon's planned trip to communist China a ploy designed to get the minds of the people off problems at home. Speaking tonight at a St. Louis dinner honoring former President Harry Truman, O'Brien declared the only war the Democratic Party wants next year is the good old fight against man's ancient enemies, poverty, disease, hunger, and illiteracy. As for the Nixon administration, the Democratic Party leader said, this is nothing more than a head-in-the-sand presidency, an administration of indecision and insensitivity. On Long Island, a tentative settlement has been reached in the dispute between striking public school teachers and the education board of the Middle Country School District. More than 700 teachers have been on strike since last Wednesday over their demands for limits to classroom size and no ceilings on premium pay for higher education credits of teachers. Teachers will vote tomorrow on the tentative agreement. No details will be given until after that vote. New York City Corrections Commissioner George McGrath says the financial inability of poor people to obtain release on bail is a legitimate grievance of ghetto residents against the American judicial system. Interviewed on WOR's Inside City Hall, McGrath told the host, Deputy Mayor Timothy Costello, that basing freedom or confinement on money is a basic injustice, but city officials are studying possible remedies. There are some alternatives that we're exploring, the Criminal Justice Coordinating Council is, and that is whether or not we can't have, going back to John Augustus, who founded uh, probation way back in uh, 1850 in Boston, he went bail for people. He originated the idea of going into a court and say, look, I'll take this poor fellow in my home and I'll go bail for him. Don't set any money bail. I'll be his bail. So the courts were releasing people to him and he would bring them back. Now, we can use that principle with agencies in the community, with churches, with ministers, with clergymen of all kinds. If they'll only come forward and come to the court and say... Okay, this man is here. Ordinarily, you would hold him in a $1,000 bail. He couldn't make it. He'd go to the tombs. I now will take this man back to the community, and I will be responsible for him. Now, we will lose some people that way. But I think that it can serve a double purpose, one, to keep the man out who doesn't deserve to be in, and secondly, to get these people really interested in these people who need uh, some help. So I'm hopeful that our bail system will be changing uh, as the months and years go by from a money system to some other substitute. New York City Corrections Commissioner George McGrath. More news now in 30 seconds. John Wingate here, inviting you on the weekend to join me weekdays on Radio New York, 315 to 7. Smooth music, helicopter 710 to get people home in the afternoon drive time, and some of the guests next week, the actor, Dennis Hopper, the actress, Hildegard Kneff, who wrote a very revealing autobiography. Also, Peggy Fleming, who skates rather well. Everything, 315 to 7, right here on WOR 710 AM weekdays. More news. A memorial mass was held today at St. John's Roman Catholic Church in Manhattan for the ten slain guards of Attica State Prison. Just before the Mass, WOR's Roger Skibbenis asked Leo Zeffaretti, head of the Correction Officers Benevolent Association of New York City, 
What is the attitude of prison guards here? Zeffaretti replied. The attitude has been the same, not because of Attica, but because of conditions within the system that's been prevalent over a long period of time. We live on a daily basis with this type of situation that could erupt at any given time. Our people are outnumbered over 101. They're unarmed. They do a daily job today that requires them to work 12, 14, and 16 hours a day based on the fact that we just don't have enough correction officers. Is this the biggest problem you feel? There's two problems. One is a problem of overcrowding that I think the administration better take a good hard look at. And secondly, the fact that we are so understaffed that our people are getting just overworked. More than 1,000 people attended the funeral service today in a Brooklyn Baptist church for six inmates who were slain in Attica State Prison 12 days ago. Mourners were also outside the Cornerstone Baptist Church at Lewis Avenue and Madison Street to hear eulogies for the slain convicts. 42 is now the death toll from the Attica clash. 21-year-old Edward Menefi died in a Buffalo, New York hospital. Cause of Menefi's death has not been revealed. In Central Park, a rally today to protest the Attica deaths. New York State Assemblyman Arthur Eve, one of the citizen mediators during the five-day inmate rebellion, gave a lengthy description of those talks. Eve said reports that mediators had suggested the prisoners surrender their hostages before negotiating on their demands was totally false. Over 1,000 people were there to also demand release from prison of Angela Davis, and they heard her mother declare, quote, Angela represents the struggle of all political prisoners. Three men allegedly involved in a big-time heroin smuggling operation were arrested today in Astoria, Queens. Custom agents uh, seized 200 pounds of the drug last Wednesday after finding the shipment hidden in a late-model American car that was brought from Genoa, Italy, on the Italian ship Raffaello. Agents allowed the car to be claimed by Giuseppe Giacomazzo of 33rd Street in Astoria. They trailed him, and today Frank Rappa of 25th Drive, Flushing, and Lorenzo Delosio of 34th Street, Astoria, were arrested along with Giacomazzo. The spokesman for the United States Customs Commissioner said more arrests were expected on Monday. In the past five months, customs men have intercepted six cars from overseas that had drugs concealed in them. Alabama Governor George Wallace is in town tonight. He spoke at a Manhattan hotel to raise funds for a possible new attempt to run for president. Earlier today, Wallace called President Nixon's trip to communist China a colossal mistake, and he declared it would be catastrophic to turn our backs on the nationalist Chinese. Tonight, Wallace said if he does decide to run for president, he will talk about taxes from one end of the country to the other. After today's student anti-government riots in Saigon, South Vietnam's Vice President Ki met with less militant opposition leaders to plan strategy in protest of President Thieu's one-man election campaign. The meeting was the first definite indication that Ki might be trying to coordinate efforts of anti-Thieu groups. New York Attorney General Louis Lefkowitz has appealed to the National Rail Passenger Corporation, Amtrak, to restore passenger train runs between New York City and Montreal. Lefkowitz said the North Country towns depend on rail transit, especially when heavy snows make roads and airports impassable. The passenger trains between New York and Montreal stopped running last May when Amtrak took over all interstate train service. With the school year just underway, the Encyclopedia Sales Army usually begins making its pitch to homes. But effective October 1st in the metropolitan area, Salesmen of the Encyclopedia Britannica will work under a signed agreement with New York City's Consumer Affairs Department not to use the hard sale technique. Salesmen will also be forbidden from making false claims about special price deals or emotional appeals to parents about the success of their school children tied to encyclopedias. City Consumer Affairs Commissioner Bess Meyerson hailed the agreement with the Encyclopedia Britannica Company as a standard for improving sales practices throughout the country. I'll have sports and the weather for you now in just one minute. When you think of Chinese Americans, what do you think of? The old Tong killers or Charlie Chan or a waiter? Well, more than 100,000 Chinese live in New York City, and New York Magazine thinks they've been inscrutable long enough. So this week... New York Magazine devotes an entire issue to the Chinese in New York, an issue that explores the psychology and psyche of a people who have been, Tom Wolfe writes in his major article, the most abused in American history. There's an article on the effect the new move to seed red China is having on New York's Chinese population, and it's close to revolutionary. 
Pete Axelm writes about gambling and how only the Chinese have been able to keep both organized crime and the police out. There's a story on acupuncture and one on Chinese fashions. Gail Green reports on the high rent Chinese restaurants and the underground gourmet on the low-priced luncheonettes. China comes to New York, an entire issue of New York Magazine. On sale now. It takes you behind the spare ribs and the egg rolls. And now a sports roundup. First in baseball, the Giants slip some more while the Dodgers move onward. Today, Cincinnati edged San Francisco 6-5, to while Los Angeles edged Atlanta 5-4. to Now the Giants lead the Dodgers in the National League's West by only one game, and there are four games left to play for each of the two contending teams. The Mets beat the Pirates today at Shea Stadium in 15 innings, 2-1. to St. Louis over Montreal, 8-6, to and Chicago beat Philadelphia 4-2. to in the American League, the Tigers gave the Yankees a bad time today at a 10 to 7 defeat. Baltimore over Cleveland 6 to 4. Boston topped Washington 6 to 3. Milwaukee beat Oakland 8 to 6. And Minnesota swept two from Kansas City 7 to 2 and 7 to nothing. On the color